Well, church, if you have your Bible with you, open up to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. And if you don't, that's okay. You can read along with the scripture on the screens uh, this morning. But we're so glad to have you. If you're a first-time guest with us this morning, uh, thank you for being here. Um, we just want you to know we're so excited that you came to visit with us today. And uh, I will be in the cafe this morning, which is right outside these doors in the lobby on the left there. So please stop by uh, after the service. I'll be out there, and I would love to get a chance to meet you. So we are continuing our series this morning called Exiles. Uh, we're looking at the book of First Peter, and we've been in First Peter. This is our spring ser uh, sermon series, so I promise it is going to end in the month of May, okay? I realize summer's coming, so I've got to end it, right? Uh, but no, we've, we've really enjoyed uh, going through this book and this letter that Peter wrote 2,000 years ago to Christians addressing them as living in a non-Christian world. Therefore, they are exiles in this world. And so that applies to us today as well. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. And before we dig into that, let me pray and ask the Lord to bless His Word this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful for Your grace and Your faithfulness. As we just sang, Lord, great is Your faithfulness. You are with us. You are for us. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. So Lord, as we talk about how we talk with the world today, I pray that you would give us great wisdom, give us insight and knowledge and truth from your word, transform our hearts with it, and draw us closer to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm convinced that one of the worst ideas in modern history in the modern era is how these 24-hour news channels will put six people on the screen at the same time and have them debate a topic, right? I mean, you can't hear anything anyone's saying. They're all just yelling over the other person and trying to get in their, you know, two cents. And it's like I tune in to try to become smarter on an issue, and then I, turn, I tune off thinking that I'm dumber on it now, right? I mean, that's just how it goes. And so it's very hard these days, though, in our society to find healthy dialogue, especially with two people with two opposing views. It's so rare these days, right, that we see people with opposing views coming together and actually having good conversation, good, healthy dialogue. You know, we're, we're an impatient society, right? I mean, we, we try to get in what we think and we, we, we get in our opinions with either a short tweet on Twitter or perhaps just a quick Facebook comment or maybe a really long Facebook comment, right? We always try to voice our opinion in this digital age because we're so impatient, we just want to put it out there, and we don't want to actually take the time to get to know someone with an opposing view, maybe take them to lunch or coffee and talk to them about what they believe and why they believe it. You see, as a society, it seems that we have forgotten how to do that and how to do that well. Today, Peter is going to talk about our dialogue with the world. How we are speaking to the world collectively as the church in terms of not just our verbal words, but also our actions. What are we speaking? What kind of dialogue are we having with a lost and unbelieving world? Peter's going to talk to us about how we engage in healthy dialogue with those who have opposing views 
How can we talk to them? What does our life need to look like in front of them as we seek ultimately to win them? Not to ourselves, not to this church, but to Jesus himself. So they can experience the gift of salvation as we have. You see, at the point in history that Peter wrote this letter, the Christians he was writing to were experiencing persecution in the form of ridicule or mockery or social pressure from their friends or their neighbors. And and maybe in some circumstances, there was some localized physical abuse, though it wasn't widespread at the time Peter wrote this. But either way, Christians in this day, 2,000 years ago in the first century of the Roman Empire, were experiencing all kinds of pressure to conform to the norms of society rather than stand up for what they truly believed in. All because they claimed to follow a Palestinian man named Jesus Christ who claimed he was the one true God as he walked around the earth in his three years of ministry. He claimed that he created the universe and his disciples claimed that he died and rose from the grave. So, of course, that message was very controversial in the first century in the Roman Empire because most people in Rome and the lands that they inhabited worshipped false gods, right? They worshipped many pagan gods. And even Caesar, the emperor of Rome, was considered to be godlike. So you can imagine, right, as Christians living in, as, as such a minority in that kind of world, you can imagine the kinds of conversations that would come up with their neighbors about who they worshipped. Well, what gods do you worship, they may ask. And you tell them, well, I only worship the one true God. And they would look at you like you are insane, like you're crazy. What do you mean the one true God? We have 25 gods. I have statues of them all across my dining room table. And then I also have all my kids' toys on the dining room table as well. You could come look. But they would look at you like you're crazy. And so these Christians were going through this persecution from their social circles because they confessed that Jesus was the only God and that he was alive. So I think Peter wants us to see this morning three issues that we must consider as we today seek to have deliberate dialogue with an unbelieving world. You know, the last phrase of our vision statement here at Kernan is that we want to witness as we go. We want to be witnesses, faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ and his gospel message as we go and live our lives in this world. And that's what we're looking at today. Peter is going to give us three things we need to consider if we're going to have that intentional, deliberate kind of healthy dialogue that is so rare in our world today. Number one, he's going to talk to us about our reputation to outsiders Number two, our conversation with unbelievers. And number three, our motivation to witness to them. Our reputation, our conversation, and our motivation. So number one, Peter's going to tell us about our reputation and what it needs to look like. We see this in verses 8 through 12 of chapter 3. Here's what he says. He says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, 
Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So notice Peter starts out there in verse 8. He says, finally, finally, all of you. Well, obviously he's summarizing something. You know, these last few weeks we've been looking at very specific topics that Peter has been talking about and addressing in the Christian life, right? How we deal with an unbelieving government. How we deal with uh, unbelieving supervisors in the workplace. How we deal with an unbelieving or how we live with an unbelieving spouse, right? He's addressed really pertinent and, and sensitive issues. And so now he's summarizing all of this by saying, finally, everybody who claims to know Christ, all of you church, right? That's what he's saying. All of us, no matter what our specific life circumstance or season of life may be, all of us are called to this, to this what? Well, you see Peter saying here in these verses eight through 12, that the church should be known for our godly character and our pursuit of peace in this world. Even when it seems that no one else is doing that, when it seems that the rest of the world is not pursuing peace, when it seems that the rest of the world doesn't care so much about character, they care more about results, when it seems that nobody is having healthy dialogue anymore these days, Peter says, no, 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 no. We should be characterized by our godly behavior and our pursuit of peace and our deliberate dialogue. That should be our reputation. Peter is drawing here from Psalm 34, but he's also drawing, and he quotes Psalm 34 here, but he also is drawing from Christ's teaching on this very same subject from his Sermon on the Mount. You can look in Matthew 5, verses 9-11. Listen to the familiar language. This is Jesus talking and preaching to his disciples, and here's what he said. Jesus said, Blessed, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, so first of all, we are we are going to face, as Peter and Jesus point out, we are. It's a given. We're going to face criticism. We're going to face controversy as believers, as followers of Jesus in this world. If we're really living for the Lord, right? I think one good litmus test for how much you're actually living your life for Jesus and being obedient to his commands is how much people are actually criticizing you. For that, if no one ever has a problem with your life as a Christian, you may not be living a Christian life. If all your unbelieving friends seem to think that you're just like them and you do all the things they do and you think the way they think and you talk the way they talk and you have unhealthy dialogue like they do, maybe you need to check your heart this morning, right? Maybe we're not living the way Jesus actually commanded us to live. So Peter, though, and Jesus both are saying, as we do live that way, as we follow in Christ's footsteps, we're never going to be perfect. We're always going to make those mistakes. But as we strive, as we strive to live for the Lord in this world, we are going to face 
evil. We are going to face controversy. We're going to be challenged. We're going to be criticized. We're going to be reviled. But Peter and Jesus both say, we do not, we do not shout back. We don't mimic the talking heads on Fox or CNN. We do not shout over the other person. We do not shout back. We do not get even. We do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling like he says in verse 9. Because if we do that, we're no different from the world, right? I mean, if that's the tone of our conversation, if that's how our reputation is being built, we are no different than the rest of the world. There's a better way. There's a better way, Peter says. Instead, in verse 9, what does he say? He says, we bless. We don't curse, we bless. We don't speak deceit and slander those who slander us, as he says in verse 10. No, we bless and we seek peace and pursue it, he says in verse 11. So let me ask you, I mean, how are we doing at this? <laughs> and when I say we, I mean just Christians in America, what do you think? What do you think the world thinks of us? What do you think we are known for? What is our reputation? It's a good question worth asking. Maybe a better question is bringing it down to a personal level. What is your reputation? With the people who don't know the Lord that, that you live around, that you work with, that you spend time with, maybe even in your own family. What is your reputation to them? Are you known for being a peacemaker or are you known for being arrogant and argumentative just trying to win the conversation and not actually win them to the Lord we're going to talk more about this in just a minute but for now we need to know in these few verses that we must be aware of what kind of reputation we have with unbelievers in our lives it is so important that we think about this that we don't live in ignorance and, and just forget that that matters. It matters so much. We bless those who curse us because we know the eyes of the Lord are on us, Peter says. He hears our prayers, he says. So you know what that means? That means that we are free to love our enemies. We're free to love our enemies. We don't have to shout back. We don't have to get even because we know that we have all the approval of our Lord and God creator that we could ever need. His eyes are on us. We don't need, we don't need to get even or get back or shout back. We have the Lord's approval, so we're free to love. We're free to serve our enemies. So our reputation should be one of Christ-like character as we pursue peace with those who oppose us. The second thing we see in these verses is found in verses 13 through 17. It's our conversation. Peter has something to say about our actual conversation. So our reputation is one thing, and that's going to be defined a lot mostly by our, our actions, right, and our words in general. But specifically, Peter wants to talk about the actual conversations we're having with people in our lives about the Lord. Look what he says in verses 13 through 17. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Look at this, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness 
and respect. Now, you would think, you would think, Peter basically saying, you would think people would appreciate our integrity and our, our honorable conduct and that we pursue peace. And, and some people will. Many people at large in society will respect godly character because our behavior, right, is, is loving and serving and, that's, and Christ-like and that's good. So we will garner respect in that way. But many people and truly society at large, are still going to be hostile to our message, to the message of the gospel, that Jesus is exclusively the only way to salvation, the only way to eternal life. That's the message Jesus himself proclaimed, right? He said that no one comes to the Father except through me. So it's going to be controversial because what we're claiming to believe here in this building today is that Jesus is the only true God. And so it's not, salvation is not going to come through Muhammad. It's not going to come through Buddha. And it's not going to come through being obedient to Moses' law. It's only going to come through personal trust and faith in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection applied to your heart. That's it. This is controversial. This is exclusive. And so it shouldn't surprise us. So Peter has some instruction then how we need to be careful, deliberate, and intentional in how we talk about this. Notice he says in verse 15, we have to be prepared. We have to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. Because people are going to ask. Right? In other words, Peter's saying we have to be ready to have dialogue with unbelievers about why you believe what you believe. Not just telling them what you believe, but why. What's the why behind it? Now, there's almost a whole sermon in this one verse, but I want us to real quick look at three subpoints here about the different parts of our conversations with our unbelieving friends. All right? First of all, Peter talks about our motivation in that conversation. Right? Why are we talking? to our unbelieving friends. Well, Peter says it should be to honor Christ. Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So when we engage our neighbor who has a different uh, belief system than us, or when we talk to our coworker who, you know, they've been in and out of church for years and, and they don't really understand the gospel and they have a lot of criticism about the Christian faith and the church world. When we're talking with any kind of scenario here, when we're having these conversations, the motivation in our hearts must not be ourselves, right? To make ourselves look smart, to garner respect from this person we're talking to. It can't be to win an argument, and it can't be to win an election. It can't be to convince them to vote for a certain person. What we want as we have these conversations is not social. It's not political. It's not psychological. It is inherently spiritual. It is an issue of the heart, Peter says. And so rather the reason, the reason we are engaging unbelievers in conversation about faith is for one reason, to honor Christ and see them come to know him as their personal Lord and Savior. But to do that, you have to have compassion. <laughs> How hard is that? That's difficult these days. It's hard to have compassion on those who have opposing views. 
It's hard for us to actually want them to go to heaven. In fact, sometimes we may say something else. But we want, we need to want and desire that people would come to know the Lord, even if we sharply disagree with their actions or their belief or their lifestyle. As God does not want them to perish, neither can we. We must have compassion and see behind the thick veil of their own wicked behavior or beliefs. We look through that and into a heart that truly is looking for answers. We see a person who needs the grace of Jesus and needs his forgiveness for their sin and is turning to all the wrong things in the world to try to find that sense of peace. We have to look at people who are different than us that way. We have to look at them and say, I want this person to know the Lord. I don't want this person to experience misery because I disagree with them on something. I want them to love Jesus. And I want them to know how great His grace is. So our motivation is the love of Christ in our own hearts, Peter says. It's His holiness. It's, it's His Lordship. It's His Gospel. It's about people coming to Christ, not them joining our side. Our motivation is the gathering of people from all nations and tribes and tongues one day before the throne of our Creator so we all can worship together. So we must remember, why am I talking to this person? Why should I talk to this person? Secondly, I think Peter tells us just in verse 15 about our method. The method is intentional conversation, right? We're very intentional with the words we use. Peter says we must be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You know what I've noticed? I've noticed that people are more than willing to share their opinions about what they believe. Truly, I, I have experienced this just in my own life talking with with different people and, and unbelievers, people are, people are happy to talk to you about what they believe, right? No one is usually ashamed of that. Most people are more than happy to share their opinions with you, okay? Trust me, I know that because I'm a pastor, all right? And no, we're not going to turn the AC up in here, all right? Just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm being serious. We're not going to turn it up. Um, <laughs> But people are more than happy to share their opinions. People are more than happy to talk about God. In fact, Paul, when he was in Athens preaching in Acts 17, I think we see a great depiction of this. Paul was, he was so intent on having intentional conversation with the pagan worshipers there in the city of Athens, Greece. All right, so again, lots of gods, lots of different belief systems, a very polytheistic culture. And so here's Paul in what they called the Areopagus, all right? It was a place where they would come and debate philosophical ideas and speakers would speak and people would debate. You know, they had the, the two stages and, you know, the big logo behind them and the two candidates just yelled at each other the whole time. That's what Paul, no, that's not what it was, right? <laughs> no, Paul was having careful, thoughtful, intentional conversation in that great arena about Jesus Christ. He was sharing the gospel. Paul said in Acts 17, he said, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You see, Paul was talking to a bunch of people 
who had no idea who Jesus Christ was and much less what he actually did and claimed to do. And so Paul met them on their level. He met them. I, I, I need to preach Acts 17 one day because I'm telling you, it's, a, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing depiction of what we're talking about here. But that's another sermon for another day. But here's what you need to know. Paul was standing there in front of all those Greek philosophers And he's standing there pleading with them, but he's meeting them on their level. And he's being tactful with his words. He's being careful with what he says, but he's prepared. He's prepared to make a defense for the hope that's in him. And he meets them on their level. He starts talking about how they acknowledge that they must need some kind of higher being in their lives. But the higher being they've been looking for is Jesus Christ, who actually came down to them. He's not a distant God who cannot be known. He is a God who became a man and lived and died so that we don't have to die an eternal death. So striking up conversations about God like Paul and Peter were so accustomed to doing in their day, I don't think it's that hard in our day. But Peter says we need to be prepared, right? So what does it mean to be prepared? How how do you prepare to talk to someone about the Lord? Now, listen. In the, in the Baptist world, you know, we've, we've all probably, if, you, if you've grown up in a Baptist church, I know many of you have not, but just let me give you a little insight. Uh, if you've grown up in a Baptist church, you've probably went through like 25 different evangelistic gospel trainings as to how to share the gospel. You probably have a cube at home, you probably have some other papers, and you probably have all kinds of little tricks and tips and tracks and techniques, all right? But here's the thing. I'm not saying all that's bad. Some of it's really good. But how do we prepare to talk to people and engage them on their level about the things of God and specifically drilling down into the gospel? You know what one of the biggest ways you can prepare is? Read your Bible. I mean, seriously. Study the God's Word. Study it yourself. I mean, one of the biggest problems in today's world in Christian in the Christian world is that Christians are biblically illiterate. One of our core values here at Kernan is we want to know what the Bible says and means. Why do we want to know what the Bible says and means? Because we're going to be engaging in conversation with people who don't know what the Bible says and means. And if we don't either, in the end, what kind of fruitful conversation is that going to be if we have no groundwork or framework or basis of truth for our words? So study God's Word. Study what the Bible says about some of these hot topics in our culture today. Get into it. Read it. Digest it. Another thing we can do is pray. We can't stop praying for for our friends and our family and our coworkers who don't know the Lord. We have to pray for their salvation, but also pray that the Lord would give us the words to say. Pray that the Lord would open up doors of opportunity, that we would create those opportunities, and that the Lord would give us the strength and the power to walk through those doors as they open. We also need to be ready to put our own testimony into words. Listen, here's the thing, guys. Yes, you need to study your Bible and be prepared to talk about your faith, but you do not have to become a theologian. I think one reason we're scared, we're afraid to talk about God with other people is because we think we have to have some kind of knowledge that a pastor has or that a theologian has or a seminary professor has. You don't have to to know that stuff. What you have to know is what Jesus has done for you. We need to be able to tell people the grace we've experienced. And yes, as we study God's Word on these hot topics, apply that to those lives in which we are engaging. 
You see, as we talk about what God's done for us, it gives us a platform to talk about our own sin and our own repentance and how we've turned away from that and we've turned to the Lord. How we still are not perfect by any stretch and we never will be. In fact, how we still sin and struggle with sin every day. But the difference is, is that we're under the grace of God. And by His Holy Spirit, we're living and trying to serve and love Him because He has served and loved us already. The bottom line is, what Peter's saying here, and being prepared to defend the reason that you have, the hope you have, the bottom line is we have to be intentional. We have to be careful and tactful and thoughtful as to the conversations we're having with the people who don't know the Lord in our lives. The third thing we see just in verse 15 is this, our tone, right? Our tone. Peter says, so do that, right? Have that intentional conversation and prepare to have it. Read God's Word, study, pray, think about these hot topics in the world today. But Peter says, do all of that, though, with what? Gentleness and respect. Not in an argumentative way. Not in an arrogant way. Not in a demeaning or condescending way. You know, this may be our biggest problem today. Though our conversation with the world needs to include all three of these aspects to be fruitful, but I think our tone is just not good sometimes. You see, being gentle and respectful, it's a conscious effort you have to make, right? I mean, for those of you who have kids or are married or even just have a best friend that you share your life with and talk to a lot about deep things, I mean, you know, right? There's going to be arguments. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be times where you don't want to be gentle and respectful in your, with your words. So we have to make a conscious effort to do that as we engage with the world because the reaction from the world is more times than not, not going to be what we hope for. Look what Peter continues to say in verses 16 and 17. He says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, right? So he's assuming it's going to happen. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So Peter's saying, listen, the slander is going to come. They're going to talk bad about you or they're going to criticize what you're saying. But I like how the NIV puts it in verse 16. So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So what is Peter saying here? He's saying, listen, if you're speaking with gentleness and respect and your behavior backs up your words, then in the end, the people who are criticizing you because of your faith or disagreeing with you, they at minimum have to realize that what they are accusing you of doesn't hold up against your actual behavior. This goes back to what Peter told us in chapter 2, verse 12, right? He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, among unbelievers honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then in Matthew 5, 16, this is what Jesus said, same thing. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So ultimately, The aim of our conversation is not to win an argument, it's to win them to Christ. And if our words and our actions are full of integrity and humility, gentleness and respect, Peter says, then maybe that will be what the Holy Spirit uses to convict people as they bring accusations and criticism 
deep down, the Holy Spirit is actually working in their heart to discover the truth. So therefore, we have the freedom to be gentle and respectful. I want to give you some practical application on that real quick before we move on. How can we be gentle and respectful in our conversation with those that don't know Jesus? I would say, be slow to speak, quick to listen. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. Yes, we're talking about being prepared to have a good conversation, a healthy dialogue. But listen to their view and listen to their point before you make yours. Listen to what they have to say. Hear them out and listen carefully. And the second thing I would say on this point is this. Care more about the person than the power of your persuasion. Care more about the person than the power of your persuasion. You know the old saying, they won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Well, that's so true when it comes to sharing the faith, when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus. Care and serve and love the people you're engaging with about the good news of Jesus so that your words carry that weight, carry that love, the love of Christ in those words. Thirdly and lastly, the final thing Peter talks about here in this section of his letter is our overall motivation for a healthy dialogue with the world. In other words, why bother with any of this, right? I mean, why not isolate ourselves from society? Wouldn't that be nice some days for us Christians just to build a commune and just live there, right? I'm not suggesting that anyway. I promise I'm not crazy. I'm just saying... I'm just saying that some days that's kind of like what we want or what we wish we could do. Why even go through the trouble and make ourselves vulnerable to criticism? Why would we want to do that? Why would we want to engage with the lost world? Can't we just write them off and just say they're all going to you know where? Peter says, no, no. Our motivation is this. <laughs> Remember who you serve. Our hope and strength comes from a triumphant Savior. And we are just following in His footsteps as we suffer in these ways. Look at what he says in verses 18 through 22. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What does Peter say? Notice in verse 18, he says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You see, this is what we call the great exchange. This is the great exchange. In other words, it's the gospel that Jesus endured suffering and persecution at infinite cost. He gives his life so that he could take our sins and give us in exchange his righteousness. That is the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus took your sin, the death you should die because of your own rebellion against God, because of your own sin and departure from God's design. Christ took that on himself. 
He bore the penalty that you should bear, that I should bear. In exchange, it's not just that He took it. He gives us something. He gives us the gift of salvation. He gives us His righteousness so that we may have a relationship with God the Father. You see, this is our motivation. What else do we need? Look how Jesus suffered for you, Peter says. The least we can do then is tell others how He suffered for them. How His righteousness can be credited to their account. The world out there is seeking answers. They are looking for hope. And they are striving so hard to live a life of goodness in hopes that one day when they stand before God, if they believe in a God of some kind, that if they stand before Him, that He will look at them and say, you know what, I think your good outweighs your bad. And so sure, come on with me into some kind of eternal paradise. That is what the world, that is what many people who claim to be Christians believe. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is that there is nothing we can do. That our good will always be outweighed by our bad. And so it's not about how good or bad we've been. It's about how perfect Christ has been for us in our place. And our faith is not in ourselves about how hard we're trying. Our faith is in Christ and what He has done and accomplished. There's some difficult verses here to interpret. But I want to spend just a brief amount of time here. There's a lot of debate as to what the identity of the spirits in prison are in verse 19. And there's some different views there. And, and I, I tend to take what the ESV study Bible says, that spirits may refer to the unsaved people of Noah's day. So Christ in the Spirit proclaimed the gospel in the days of Noah through Noah. Okay, But it may seem random here that Peter brings up baptism and Noah at the end of this, this beautiful section of his letter here. But I don't think it's random at all because baptism... And the flood are symbols both of God's grace through judgment and us being united with Him. His account credited to ours. The theologian Juan Sanchez says, in Noah's time, the flood destroyed the wicked. The water brought judgment on sin. It brought death. But Noah and his family were saved, right? They were brought safely through water, Peter says, through the waters of judgment and out into new life. And you know what baptism is? It's a picture of that. It's a picture of your salvation that Christ has brought you safely. He has been your ark. He has brought you safely through the waters of God's judgment to a better place. You see, to summarize what Peter's saying here is to say this. Because the King of glory suffered for us, we can endure suffering in this world in the form of ridicule, harsh criticism, mockery, and maybe even social ostracism. We can endure that kind of suffering because Christ has suffered so that He can rule and reign, and He is triumphant. I want to close by... Quoting Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6. Paul says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person.
So as we seek to have deliberate dialogue with unbelievers in our lives, may we be highly conscious of the reputation we're building with the outside world, with our character. May we think carefully about our conversations and may we always look to Christ as our only hope and motivation so that others may experience the grace we have found. Kyle's going to play for us in just a second, but I want to close by asking you this. What's your reputation like? What's your reputation with the people who don't know the Lord in your life? And I know this is extremely difficult, and I do not claim for one second to be an expert on this, but I'm telling you, it's hard. But boy, we've got to be aware of our words and our actions around those whom we love the most that are lost and don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. What kind of conversations are we having? Are we having deliberate, intentional, thoughtful, careful, tactful conversations? Are we just trying to win an argument? Are we just trying to prove a point? Whether it be digitally or in person, are we having careful conversations with those who oppose us in our views about Lord, the Lord and who he is? And lastly, I think some of us just need to pray for better motivation. And we just need to pray that the Lord would motivate us in the right ways to have compassion, to have compassion on this world, to see people's souls before we see everything else. And just know that at the end of the day, are we really that different? Are we really? Because I don't know about you, but I deserve to go to hell. That's what I deserve. I deserve to be lost without Christ forever. May we look with compassion on all those around us who think differently, act differently, and oppose the gospel. May we be intentional to pray that the Lord would open their hearts, but use us to do that. Would you pray with me now? Let's ask the Lord to help us really, truly do these things. Lord, we are so thankful for what you've done for us. We're thankful that you are the suffering servant. God, that you suffered and bled the most extreme ridicule, mockery, and unjust execution. All because of your heart and love and compassion. For us, those who rejected you with our own sin. Lord, because of the grace you've given us, may we be so ready and willing to extend that grace to others. Lord, change our hearts. Lord, as you are a compassionate Savior, Lord, may we be compassionate, faithful witnesses. Lord, may we truly reflect your heart and your love for people the way it has been given to us. Lord, we're just vessels of your grace and your truth. Lord, may we be bold and prepared to defend your faith, our faith in you, your truth. But may we do so with gentleness and respect. May our speech be seasoned with salt. Lord, use our lives, use us in our dialogue with this world to draw people to you.
through the power of your word. Would you do this in and through us, Lord? We believe you are a God who does great things. Would you do that through the people here at Kernan Church? Would you do this through us for your glory to honor your name and your holiness? Lord, give us the words and give us the wisdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen.